0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: So, Tegan, you've got a significant birthday coming up, I hear.
0: Coming up. It's actually today. It's my pandemic puppy's first birthday. Oh, happy. The puppy that I thought we'd gotten after the pandemic was over, and she's
1: one. Has she caught COVID yet?
0: No, she hasn't caught COVID, but she has a big case of the Zoomies most nights. So I don't know if I should get that checked out. Doctor, what do you say?
1: Um, you know, I, I, my knowledge of veterinary medicine is about the size of a postage stamp. Remember what postage stamps are, but they're pretty small.
0: It's something to do with email, right?
1: It is. Yeah, that's right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> all right, old man, let's do CoronaCast, a show all about the coronavirus. I'm health reporter Tegan Taylor, coming to you from Jagera and Turable Land.
1: And I'm physician and journalist Dr Norman Swan, coming to you from Gadigal Land. It's Wednesday, February the 8th, 2023. <music>
0: So earlier in the pandemic, there were these big questions around immunity. If you caught COVID once, were you protected forever? We very quickly realised the answer to that was no. Meanwhile, the scientists were working on vaccines. Perhaps the vaccines would protect us forever from COVID. Turns out they're very good at protecting us from severe disease and death, but they don't stop you from catching it again. So what about a combo? Or what about if you've had more than one variant? There's some more research coming out about that, Norman. Does it give us any really useful answers?
1: Well, it does. This is a paper from an international group, but it's largely from Canada and from Canadian researchers. And what they've done is reviewed... The available scientific literature on natural infection, natural infection plus what they call primary vaccination, which is your first two doses, natural infection plus the first booster. In other words, trying to capture all that in the era that really covers the beginning of the pandemic through to the middle of Omicron and their aim here is to see what the protection is from vaccine and from hybrid what's called hybrid immunity and hybrid immunity has been incredibly controversial but it's essentially when you've had both the infection and the vaccination so what's the story here so when they reviewed the literature there were a large number of studies but they boiled down to a handful of studies looking at this where they could capture reasonable data And the caveat that I've got to say at the beginning of this commentary on this research is that the research that they were basing on wasn't brilliant. There were a lot of biases involved in terms of how they did the testing, how they did the follow-up and so on. Some had a high rate of bias, risk of bias, and some had a moderate risk of bias. And so, Because
0: they're pulling together previous studies that have been done by other research groups.
1: Yeah, in other countries and with different methodologies and the chances of getting it wrong Are there, and they try to account for that in the conclusions they've come to. But the conclusions are significant, um, even with that caveat. So, previous infection is pretty good, not brilliant, but pretty good at protecting against severe disease up to about a year afterwards. Remember, the, the the follow-up for this is limited. So when they say 12 months, they haven't necessarily gone out to 24 months or 36 months. They just haven't had that ability. So that's against severe disease. So it's 74% high. Not hugely high. There's still a big gap there. That's infection alone. The effectiveness of previous infection against reinfection, or I was getting another infection, had dropped to 24% at 12 months. We kind of know that already. Having had a previous infection is not great at protecting you against a new one, partly because of variants, partly because the level of immune protection you require against a new infection is really quite high. It's a big hurdle to go over. Now, when you look at hybrid immunity, so this is immunity of vaccination plus a previous infection, that was really high against hospital admission and severe diseases, up at 97% a year later. That's with two immunizations and still pretty high after the first booster, although that follow-up tends to only go out to about six months after the most recent infection. Again, protection against reinfection with hybrid immunity is higher, but it's still pretty low at about 40 odd percent at six and 12 months. Is the so there
0: implication in- of this that in addition to vaccination, people should be trying to catch COVID because that feels like bad advice?
1: No, I think that question you ask is an important caveat in the paper as well, is that... This sounds as if it's good news, that hybrid immunity gives you this great protection at 12 months against severe disease and some extra protection against uh, infection. But the problem here is that you are risking long COVID every time you get the infection. So it's not necessarily a good thing to be infected and get hybrid immunity. But the fact is that many people are infected. The real implication of this study is Boosters. When and how do you time your boosters? And so they argue here is that you probably want to wait at least six months after a previous infection, or you can afford to wait about six months after a previous infection, and maybe even 12 months after a previous infection if your aim here is to continue the prevention of severe disease. The wild card is the variance. So if we're still within the Omicron family, with some degree of cross-immunity from the existing vaccines, etc., and previous infection, then we may be okay for a while, which might be behind the, the Food and Drug Administration in the United States' decision to suggest annual immunizations against COVID. But it's this difficult decision that we'll come back to when ATAGI meets its decision on the fifth dose for people who are not immune-compromised. There probably is a less of a degree of urgency, but the problem is long covid because getting infected with COVID is not benign.
0: Well, let's talk about long COVID because there's some new research out that's sort of maybe going to be able to help predict who might get long COVID. And, Norman, we're going to do something a little bit different (laughs) than we usually do on CoronaCast. We're actually going to get one of the the study's authors to come and talk to us about it instead of me just asking you questions.
1: Yeah, really rad, as uh, your generation (laughs) would say. We're going to get somebody on who actually knows what they're talking about. And that person (laughs) is... So rad. Jeremy Nicholson, Press Jeremy Nicholson, who's head of the Australian Phenome Centre and comes from Western Australia. And uh, this research, um, Jeremy's on the line, as you can hear, he was chuckling away. But this research, if I can deem to summarise a little bit up front, is...
0: You can't help you just you've got to get in there with the summary first, don't you?
1: Yeah, well, that, well, that's right, yeah. But essentially, following people from the beginning of the pandemic, before vaccination, to try and get a pure view of the features of people in the early stages of the disease that might predict whether they go on to get long COVID. And it's an incredibly complicated study that they did with Cambridge University where they looked at patterns in in your metabolism, patterns in your immune system, and the whole thing about phenomics is getting big-picture patterns using uh, a lot of informatics, in other words, heavy-duty computer analysis and maths to actually bring together complex patterns to see whether or not in the early stages of the disease that you could predict whether or not you're going to do well or whether or not you're going to develop long COVID, in a sense, independent of the severity of the disease up front.
0: Well, great summary, Norman. Welcome, Jeremy.
1: Hi there. So you cast a pretty wide net to see what might predict a good or poor outcome in the long term what emerged in terms of predicting long-term issues
2: well as you say we we took a a very broad sweep and we used as our sort of major marker something called c-reactive protein which is widely used by clinicians to measure how severe your overall systemic inflammatory response is And we found that there were basically three groups of patients. There were those that didn't have much of a C-reactive protein systemic response. There were some that were sort of went up and then went down, sort of recovered fairly quickly within the first sort of six or seven weeks of the disease. And there were others that were persistently elevated. So they're persistently inflamed. And what we found was that there were signatures, metabolic signatures, that corresponded to those three groups. And so that means you could actually measure those metabolites quite early in anybody's course of that disease and be able to predict whether it was likely to have long-term serious consequences.
0: So this is about the severity of their disease in the like acute phase of the illness, as well as predicting their chances of getting what we now call long COVID?
2: Yes. So <laughs> we've tried to understand the early onset of the disease, and then how that mapped on the later, later outcomes. It's more complex than saying just because you get severe respiratory disease, you're going to get more likely to get severe COVID. That is actually true, but people who are mildly affected can get long COVID as well, and that expressed itself in the biochemistry.
0: Did someone have to have COVID already for you to be able to do this predictive model? We haven't had samples from
2: before they had COVID But you're quite right that there will be predictive substances and parameters even before you get the disease that would be relevant to predicting long-term outcome. Of course, that's very difficult to get in the experimental circumstances.
1: So having got to the point where you think you've got a, a group of tests that you can do that are simplified and applicable, does it tell you anything about how to intervene and give people a better trajectory?
2: We think now that we've got this very complex model that's our next phase of our research is to produce a refined model, which is much simpler, potentially probably measured using just one technology in a rapid test, that you could then take that information and say, Well, you are going to have problems in terms of, you know, long COVID, you're going to get fatigue or whatever it happens to be, and intervene with that particular patient earlier and actually monitor them more closely. Because one of the things about long COVID is it's not one disease. We call it that, but it's actually a complex of, of some diseases,
1: most of which we think are known. Do we have any idea of whether this is applicable to people who are now vaccinated? Because ninety odd percent of the population have had at least two doses. And uh, does this does this change anything? No,
2: your... I, so I only think it changed in terms of the likely severity. So there is no evidence, to my knowledge, that being vaccinated does oh. anything other than lower probability of getting severe disease. But when you get millions and millions and millions of people infected, even if they've already been immunised, there will some of them will still have potentially serious responses.
0: So even though fewer people overall would maybe get long COVID, because they're vaccinated, this work's still really important because there's still going to be an objectively large number of people who's still going to need it.
2: Absolutely. And I think it will also give insight into other post-viral syndromes as well. COVID is not the last of these things. We're going to see other emergent zoonotic diseases, some of which will be possibly very similar. SARS-CoV-3 we've yet to see. Um, so the knowledge we get from COVID-19 is, is probably going to be generally applicable for years to come.
1: Jeremy, thank you very much for joining us on CoronaCast. Pleasure. Thank you very much. Jeremy is Pro Vice-Chancellor of Health Sciences at Murdoch University in Perth and Director of the Australian National Phenome Centre at the Health Futures Institute. And that's CoronaCast for this week.
0: We'll see you next week.
1: See you then.